Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. In the history of life at sea, one of its features is the young age some seafarers first joined the merchant or naval service. The Royal Australian Navy, for example, did not end the 13-year-old entry of cadet midshipmen until 1955. 16-year-old junior recruits joined the RAN up until the mid-1980s. And apprentices aged 15 to 16 also served in the RAN up until the early 1990s. There was also a belief dating back to the 18th century that sea offered opportunities of employment for disadvantaged boys and benevolent societies in seafaring countries set up schemes to facilitate this. To tell the story of this aspect of Australia's maritime past, I'm joined online by Sarah Luke, who is a teacher and writer. She recently authored Like a Wicked Noah's Ark, A History of the Nautical School Ships, Vernon and Sabrone. I'm also joined by John Perryman, who is Director of Naval History at the Sea Power Centre Australia. He himself joined the Navy as a 16-year-old junior sailor. In his naval career, John went on to become a warrant officer signals yeoman before becoming an officer. He also served in operations in Somalia, Bougainville and East Timor. Welcome Sarah and John. John, to set the scene, could you please describe the British origins of the concept I briefly mentioned earlier, of providing a mean for, means for disadvantaged boys to have a productive life at sea? More than happy to, and what a fascinating story it is. So for the listeners, what we need to do is we need to go back to the days of sail in the Royal Navy. Um, and, and how did they go about training their men? Well, back in those days, they didn't do very much at all to train their men in seamanship. Most of that was done at sea on the job. So the question then has to be asked, well, how do they get onto the ships in the first place? And many people would be um, aware of the Royal Navy's press gangs, which at those times was the preferred method of recruiting, for want of a better word. Um, so what did that mean? The press gangs would go out, they would go ashore, they would round up able-bodied men and boys uh, who would wake up the next day on board the ship and find themselves in the service of the Royal Navy. Now, there is a belief that the Royal Navy press gang simply rounded up the fit and able-bodied boys and men, uh, irrespective of their background. That's not actually correct. Landsmen, people who had no association with the sea, took much longer to train, and their actual target, or their preferred uh, target of opportunity, were merchant sailors because they could be trained a lot quicker. They were familiar with it, they'd done their merchant training, and they were much easier egg to boil, if you like, and, and bring to that level of training. And it was many a hapless merchant mariner who found themselves waking up in a man of war in the employ of the Royal Navy. Now, things began to change. By the mid-1800s, the Royal Navy was embracing new technology and introduce, introducing things like screw steam frigates. Um, sail was giving away to steam, wood was giving away to iron, and technology was you know, driving this. So there were some important developments to be made uh, by bringing steam into the fleet. Communications were changing also. Uh, so all of a sudden, simply having somebody in one of the wooden world warships from the Napoleonic era and training them in them in what was traditionally seamanship, 
you had to now consider, well, how are we going to teach them about these, these new modern advances? It was a revolution in uh, military affairs. So looking to the future, by the 1850s, boys as young as 15, many of them coming from broken homes or underprivileged backgrounds, were recruited and trained as seamen in the Royal Navy. And that training took place, and this brings us to our topic of discussion t- today, in the hulks of former Napoleonic-era warships, many of which had, in their day, been frontline men of war. So reduced to a hulk status, they were often tied up uh, to a buoy or moored somewhere, and they basically became floating schools and dormitories for training the seamen in, in some of those subjects I mentioned earlier. It was a cold, dark, damp, and often miserable experience for many. A change came about in 1890 when the Royal Navy began building its first barracks and schools at the three main dockyards of Chatham, Portsmouth and Plymouth. And by 1927, with one or two exceptions, almost all of the Royal Navy's static training ships had disappeared. Now, the Royal Navy training establishment that was to become synonymous with the training of boy seamen was HMS Ganges at Shotley near Ipswich in Suffolk. And it began training boys in 1905 and continued to do so until 1973. Um, so a lot of square bashing going on there. They had a, a magnificent ship's mast uh, erected there, which the boys would be required to scale. And uh, if any of the listeners are interested, I'd encourage them to Google Button Boy uh, and, and find out just what that is. And they'll see just how high and quickly these young men had to scale that mast. But anyway, look, notwithstanding the social revolutions of the 19th and earlier 20th centuries, the Royal Navy clung to the belief that a man had to be trained from an early age to become an officer, a seaman, an artisan, and its propensity to enlist young boys continued unabated. It also created a number of schemes that saw boys from Dr Bernardo's homes and other institutions funnel young boys into a variety of naval training schools. And in my father's case, uh, he was one of those. He was sent to Watts Naval Training School in Norfolk where he began his naval training coming from an underprivileged background at age 11. By 16, he was serving in a Royal Navy cruiser uh, that went in to accept the German surrender um, in, in Norway at the end of the war. So you, you can see how they, they were pushed through that system. And then, of course, mirroring the approach taken by the Royal Navy, the infant Royal Australian Navy was to emulate that practice of enlisting and training young boys, and Sarah will now embellish on that. Yeah. Thanks, John. That's a, that's a great background there. You, you mentioned something there, square bashing. What's, what's that? Well, square bashing uh, is something that's familiar to anybody who's been in the employ of the armed forces, and that is marching. So you march around the square, you are taught uh, your left from your right, Normally with, uh, in the in Navy back in those days with a gunnery instructor or a chief gunnery instructor bellowing orders at you. So um, you soon knew if you put a foot wrong. <laughs> Thanks. Sarah, in your recent book, you know, Wicked Noah's Ark, uh, you examine the origins of the Australian efforts to deal with uh, what was termed the wayward children. Um, what was all this about? Um, well, Greg, in New South Wales, for instance, in 1866, there were two um, different acts passed. They they were passed together um, as twin legislation. Um, the first one was an act for the relief of destitute children 
um, otherwise known as the Industrial Schools Act. And that was the piece of legislation that brought about um, first the Vernon um, and then later on the Sabron. And the second piece of legislation was an act to establish juvenile reformatories. So both pieces of legislation were designed to curb some of the issues in Sydney and all of New South Wales um, in the 1860s. Um, we have to remember that there was this perception that there were lots and lots of children running amok, particularly around Sydney, but also New South Wales. Um, and these children were variously termed wayward children, waifs, um, street Arabs, though we wouldn't use that term today. Um, uh, children were picked up in Sydney and New South Wales as a whole. We mustn't think of this as just a city problem. Um, they were picked up by the police um, for a small range of very, very specific crimes under um, these two acts, but particularly under the first one, the Act for the Relief of Destitute uh, Children. The idea um, uh, behind this first piece of legislation was that children who were not being looked after or who had started to commit petty crimes could, uh, under law, be picked up by the police um, and dealt with, but not in a in not not in a jail. So there was, I suppose, this sense from Henry Parks, who was um, one of the people who designed these two acts, um, this sense of um, and an attempt to break this generational cycle of criminality. Um, at the time in the 1860s, uh, a lot of children, if they did something wrong, stealing something really minor, um, really minor petty criminal offences, they would end up in jail um, and they would meet other criminals, that particularly adult criminals. Um, and so these two pieces of legislation were designed to, to stop that generational cycle of children becoming uh, criminals as their parents had. Um, what I think is particularly interesting though at this time, these pieces of legislation were not the only attempt by the colonial New South Wales government to curb some of these uh, children's issues. Um, there were other children, children welfare institutions operating at this time. Um, there was a number of uh, religious homes, particularly out at Parramatta. Um, there were quite a few private schools, and I say school in inverted commas, um, and also the Randwick Asylum for Destitute Children that had been opened in 1852. Um, the Randwick uh, was run by the Society for the Relief of Destitute Children. Um, so it was privately funded um, and then also partly funded by the government for a short amount of time. Um, so what eventually happened in 1867 was that two industrial schools were opened. The one for girls was out in Newcastle initially and then later was moved to Cockatoo Island. Um, that was for the girls. And the Vernon was uh, open for the boys. So we have the Vernon from 1867 to 1892. And then because of the success of the Vernon, um, the Sabron was brought in from 1892 to 1911, um, about three times larger than the Vernon. So we can see how, um, how it grew, how popular it was. Um, 
a lot of the children on the Vernon, just like the girls out at Newcastle and then later Cockatoo Island um, and then eventually at Parramatta, a lot of them, um, their crimes, in inverted commas, um, we could say that they were things like truancy, um, sleeping rough, refusing to go home, um, hanging around um, and loitering was a crime under the Industrial Schools Act, as was having no job. Um, so a lot of these children... Um, I think we think of them as sort of hardened criminals, but a lot of them were just hanging around Sydney um, and small towns in outer New South Wales. Thanks, Sarah. Um, John, Sarah mentioned Vernon. Uh, what sort of ship was that and, and what was her history? Well, look, as, uh, as Sarah said, you know, the ship was purchased in 1867, but she had a very, very interesting life. She was originally built as a three-masted sailing vessel, but midlife was converted as a paddle wheel brig before then again being converted back to sail. So you can see this attempt to sort of modernise her midway through her life and then there was a change of heart where she was converted back to being a, simply a sailing ship. In her early days as an East Indian ship, um, she carried passengers and cargo chiefly between England and the Pacific and became a familiar sight. As the uh, nautical uh, sail ship, or school ship rather, Vernon, she retained her mast, her rigging and spars. And this was really important because this is the sort of thing that was used to train young boys in the arts of the sailor. So things like uh, splicing, rigging, how the rigging worked, how to scale the rigging, sail making, all of those things had a very, very necessary and relevant part in the uh, both the naval fleets and merchant ships in those days. Um, Ships husbandry, keeping the ship in good nick, um, how to maintain it was also something that they learned. And that would be something that was very, very useful for both the colonial naval forces at that time and the merchant ships to uh, and froing from Australia. A survey was conducted in 1890 uh, of that ship and that revealed that many of her timbers were rotten and as a result of that she was later scrapped. Oh, thanks. Sarah, um, turning to the operation of the Vernon, um, how did the scheme actually work? How, how did they make, make how did they make it happen? Great question. Um, I think that the first thing to underline is that this was definitely in an industrial school, not a reformatory. Um, a lot of people uh, these days and also in the 1860s were under the impression that the Vernon was a juvenile reformatory or a prison um, for children. And it, it absolutely wasn't. Definitely was an industrial school. Um, we can tell that not just from the legislation um, and the rules and regulations of the Vernon, but also that by the time um, in the very late 1890s, the first uh, boys reformatory was opened, it was quite a big deal. Um, so the Vernon was definitely a school, not a prison. Um, in the 1860s, the decision to house the boys on a ship and the girls in various locations around Sydney, but always on land, um, I think is an interesting one. Um, the industrial school being on a ship, it screams, we're making sailors. Um, but this was actually not not a completely clear idea, I think, in the minds of people like Henry Parks at the time. Let me elaborate on that. Um, the industrial school Vernon was always regarded as just a starting point for the 
the management of children in New South Wales. The colonial government at first had a really quite grand plan to open several institutions, industrial schools for boys and for girls. Um, but for boys, they planned that the Vernon would just be the first piece of a very large puzzle that would combine a sea-based school ship with other terrestrial land-based institutions. Um, the idea was that boys who were regarded as robust rather than fragile, and I use the terminology from the government at the time, and that boys were, who were robust would go to the Vernon and learn to be sailors, and that other boys who were perhaps um, not as strong, we have to remember that these children were street children. They, were, they had not been well fed. Often they arrived on the Vernon with um, terrible diseases, some, sometimes malnourished, and just an incredibly poor attitude sometimes, um, that the others would be uh, in those terrestrial institutions where they would learn to be agricultural workers, bakers, carpenters, things like that. Um, but this fell through very early on in the plan. Um, uh, Henry Parks was, I think, a bit surprised um, because after they opened the Vernon, the uh, colonial government realised that this was pretty much all that was needed. There weren't these hordes and hordes of boys and, of course, girls needing this kind of assistance in their lives. Um, and the colonial government decided that for boys, the Vernon would do um, in the early 1870s, late 1860s. Um, and this was a bit of a stunning surprise to a lot of people, particularly the captain at the time, Captain Maine, who I think envisaged himself being uh, the superintendent of a huge, sprawling Sydney institution. Um, uh, the government at this time had already ploughed thousands of pounds into the purchase and refitting of the Vernon. It was incredibly secure. I don't think you could come up with a, a better um, uh, location to house these boys. So anything more secure would be impossible to find. So they towed it to Cockatoo Island, uh, set out a portion of land uh, in 1871 and said, well, the boys who don't want to be sailors, you can go and work on Cockatoo Island and this was sort of the what became the mini version of what had been um, earlier envisaged. It wasn't until the second captain um, captain Natenstein, um, who became captain in 1878, it wasn't until him that um, we could call the Vernon anything even approaching a, a slick institution. Um, captain Maine had so many issues, um, uh, partly because of his own personality and temperament, but also partly because of some of the rules that he was obliged to um, be ruled by. Um, Natenstein organised the institution incredibly well. He was um, a very good understander of adolescent psychology and he was really the one that I think we can look to for a sense of what the operations on the Vernon were. Um, he organised the boys' days so that they were in school for much of the day, so doing their academic lessons. Um, we have to remember that a lot of the boys who came to the Vernon uh, had never been to school before, and yet some had. So the range of students was quite broad. You had sometimes 15-year-olds learning the alphabet, and you'd have eight-year-olds doing geography um, and history classes. So it was quite a broad curriculum 
curriculum um, from the primary school era. The, of had, that's how we would think of it today. Um, other things that they did during the day under Nathan they did um, some seamanship, so some really deliberate seamanship lessons, um, but also other things that would keep the ship in good working order, which I suppose is also a good set of skills to have, um, as John was just saying. Um, so a lot of carpentry, a lot of painting, a lot of cleaning as well. But the emphasis for Nightenstein was that the boys did these tasks and learned respect. They learned how to obey orders from their superiors. They learned to follow rules. Um, he tended to reward the boys a lot more than Captain Maine had done with a lot of excursions and sport on Cockatoo Island, where those same sorts of life lessons could also be learned. Um, as a result, partly because the boys were on a ship, but partly because most of the teachers, um, officers, the captain, were all men who were very experienced uh, sailors. Um, some of them had some really interesting backgrounds. Um, there was a VC recipient, uh, James Gorman, on board for many years. Um, uh, so the ship produced a lot of sailors. Um, all three superintendents were across the across the ship's history um, were very keen on that. Um, the largest number of boys who would have been uh, sailors as part of their apprenticeship after they'd been on board the Vernon and Sabron about a year, a year and a half, uh, definitely occurred under the third captain, Captain Mason. Um, and that is for this simple reason that um, Captain Mason received a tender, the dart, um, where they had a special sailing master who used to take the boys out on some incredible journeys, out through the heads, they sailed all along the coast. Um, and it got to a point in the early 1900s where the demand for boy sailors from the Sabron was about twice as much as they could provide. Um, and the, these boys were very highly sought after um, by masters of uh, ships. So it, it, it sort of, I suppose, the numbers of boys who were being apprenticed as sailors rose and fell and really peaked under Mason because he had a, a, a boat for them to practice on. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a significant uh, amount of work there. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned that uh, the boys are on board Vernon and the girls are at Cockatoo Island, but the boys are going ashore to Cockatoo Island to, to work. So was there any interaction occurring there at all? <laughs> Um, I think we need to remember that these two institutions for boys and girls only overlapped for um, a few years between 1871 and 1880. Uh, the girls were moved off the island and moved to Parramatta. Um, so the boys were there for a lot longer, um, but there were those nine years. I think it seems really lovely and very neat and picturesque to think of the boys on the ship and the girls on the crown of the island in the old convict barracks. Um, but I think one of the problems that this created was this really strong visual discrepancy in terms of the funding between these two institutions. Um, in the 1800s, fallen girls were seen as far less rescuable than fallen boys at this time. Um, the girls were funded far less as a result. They were in these awful old buildings that are still up on the top of Cockatoo Island. Um, 
they were even uh, the girls industrial school and reformatory was one institution which then created some interesting problems um, from some of the archives that I've read it does seem that the girls in the reformatory were better behaved than those in the industrial school um, uh, I think that the the great contrast between the boys and the girls in terms of not just their accommodation, but also the organisation of the two institutions must have been very clear to the girls. Um, in the 1870s, the staff had one hell of a time controlling some of those young women. Um, in 1871, there were some fantastic riots. And I say fantastic because they must have been quite exciting at the time. Um, the girls set fire to their school. Um, they got through an iron fence that had been built to keep out the dock workers who would be routinely working on Cockatoo Island. There was always that problem of keeping these young men away from these girls. Um, uh, the, the girls made weapons out of their own furniture, breaking their beds apart. They broke windows. Um, uh, of course, the superintendent of the girls' institution used to blame the presence of Vernon boys exercising um, down in different parts of Cockatoo Island in view of the girls. Um, and there are some wonderful letters um, from the Vernon superintendent saying, you know, I've got these girls down uh, running towards my ship. They're tearing off their clothes. We have to send all of our boys down to the lower deck so that they won't be contaminated by these terrible, terrible girls. Um, I think that they didn't, I know that they didn't have very much to do with each other for those sorts of reasons that the girls were seen as unrescuable, um, absolute fiends compared to these boys. Um, the Probably the main link was that they sometimes did chores for each other. Um, the girls sometimes did the Vernon boys washing, although I wouldn't say that happened very regularly because that was one of the chores that the boys could learn discipline and organisation through. Um, uh, there was a short time where Vernon boys attempted, and I really underline attempted, to make uh, boots for the girls, um, but they were not very good at it and it didn't keep happening. Um, so their main exchange, and not for very long, was an exchange of labour, um, but definitely some amusing um, moments for the boys as the girls uh, tore Cockatoo Island apart. <laughs> it sounds like it was an interesting day. Hey. <laughs> You've mentioned um, the significant work, obviously, that uh, Henry Parks did to set this up in New South Wales. Um, did any of the other states follow suit, or was colonies as they were in those days, as opposed to being states? Yes. Um, yes, several of the colonies were making use of old ships to um, section off the, the unruly children um, that they found among them. Um, in other colonies, um, they tended to be used as reformatories, though. I think this is where some of the confusion around the Vernon and Sabron has been built up over the years that, you know, you look at all of the other colonies and they've got ships for their uh, juvenile prisons. Um, and so the Vernon and Sabron were, they had a different purpose, but they looked the same. Um, I can see why these ships were incredibly secure. Um, they look like prisons. Uh, there are connotations of convict hulks, um, this sense of unbending naval discipline. 
Um, I think that they would strike fear into the heart of any child picking someone's pocket. Um, uh, the most famous, uh, are, in my opinion, the most famous other reformatory ship in Australia was South Australia's Fitzjames, um, which in and of itself had a fascinating life. Like so many of these ships, they were reborn multiple times. Um, Fitzjames was an immigrant ship to begin with, then it was a quarantine ship, um, and then it was used as a reform reformatory, um, popularly called Hell Afloat. Um, it doesn't, doesn't sound like it was very successful. Um, in Victoria, though, they did, similarly to the Vernon, have a naval training ship. Um, theirs was the Sir Henry Smith um, and then later on the Nelson but both were abandoned. Um, they they weren't run very efficiently. Um, the Some of the children became ill, um, which is something that the Vernon and Sabron were very careful to avoid. Um, Victoria trialled some other terrestrial industrial schools later on, but failed for much the same reasons. So, Yes, a lot of the other colonies were using ships, either as reformatories or industrial schools, but it was New South Wales's institutions that really stood the test of time. Thanks, Sarah. John, in 1892, the old Vernon, as you previously mentioned, was uh, was worn out and was replaced by the Sabrone. Now, Sabrone was quite famous for her day. Can you tell us a bit more about her? Of course. Now, the Sabrone was one of the largest composite clipper ships ever built. Um, she had iron ribs, teak planking, and as originally designed, she was to be fitted with a steam engine, but that didn't actually happen. Uh, during the building, it was decided to finish her purely as a sailing vessel, uh, and, and that was how she was completed. The name itself was uh, interesting because she was named Sabron to commemorate the battle of uh, fought by the, in, by the British in India in February 1846, so that's where the name comes from. Um, she certainly made her mark but applying that trade between England and Australia. When fully rigged, this was a vessel that uh, carried over 13,000 square yards of canvas, about two acres of sail. So you can imagine what she would have looked like uh, when fully rigged under full sail and at top speed of 16 knots, which is which is a fair, as the name suggests, a fair clip yep. <laughs> uh, in those days. Um, she had a crew of about 65 and her best run between London and Sydney took 73 days. So that's quite remarkable when you think that uh, a vessel of that size back then uh, under sail could do that. Uh, still a long time by today's standards, but back then it was seen as, uh, you know, a very, very quick turnaround. And I assume she would have been going around Cape Horn and not, not transiting through the yes, canal. Yes, indeed. Um, she was to spend uh, 24 years doing the England-Australia run and, you know, a beautifully appointed ship and one that uh, generated a lot of fondness from those who'd sailed in her. Oh, thanks. Sarah, uh, in 1911, the nautical school ship uh, scheme came to an end. Um, what replaced it at that point? Mm. Um by the time 1911 rolled around, um, the Sabron had relatively recently been joined by some other institutions for boys in New South Wales. So even though it was 1866 that that act to establish juvenile reformatories had been made, it wasn't until 1894 that New South Wales finally had a reformatory. Um, that was the first institution that um, 
joined the Sobron. Um, that was called the Carpentarian Reformatory out at Brush Farm in Eastwood. Um, there was also another industrial school, the Mittagong Farm Home for Boys. Um, the three worked in tandem, again, even though two of them were industrial schools and one of them was technically a prison, they tended to um, exchange boys if one institution wasn't really gelling with a child. Um, the Sobron became more and more frequently treated as a reformatory by the courts, even though Brush Farm was the mandated legislated uh, prison. The Sobron, because it looked more like one and it was far more secure than Brush Farm, uh, was continually being given children uh, who had so sometimes some serious criminal uh, records behind them. Now, the combination of the three institutions working together um, and the fact that herding children together on mass was not fashionable by 1911 meant that the New South Wales state government was ready to make a big change. Um, they collapsed Brush Farm, the reformatory, and the Sobron, the pretend reformatory, um, into a new institution called the Farm Home for Boys, which was out at Gosford. Um, and this later became the Mount Penang Training School for Boys. And Mittagong continued to operate. Um, Quite a few Sobron boys went out to the Mount Penang home um, and quite a few of the Sobron staff, some of the teaching staff and others, um, went out there as well. Um, I think it's, it's quite lovely that uh, some of the teachers who were there at the time were charmed by the fact that even though they were building this new institution out in Gosford, that a lot of the Sobron boys maintained their sense of ship uh, terminology. So they were still enforcing a sense of port and starboard watches. Um, they called the, the assembly area the quarter deck. So they maintained all those lovely nautical terms. I sometimes think that the boys from the Carpentarian Reformatory must have wondered what was going on. Um, but uh, obviously a positive legacy there that the boys saw those nautical terms as an efficient way to organise themselves and the new uh, inmates. That's interesting because uh, I come from the Gosford area and uh, I knew some of the uh, the lads who were at uh, Mount Penang and even in the 1980s they still called the assembly area the quarter deck. So that's yes. a name that existed you know, 70 more years after um, Sabrone had uh, gone the way. Yes, some of their dormitories are still called Vernon and Sabron, um and others that are named after some of the staff as well. Uh John, well now I'd like to have a look at uh, Sabrone's next phase of its life when it became a naval boys training ship. I think it's really important just to add to what Sarah has very, very neatly summarised for us about what was taking place with the Sabrone boys and that culture that they took elsewhere to Gosford and Penang. Um, purchased in 1891 by the, by the government uh, to replace the Vernon, she was extensively converted. Okay, And in the new role, she was given a permanent mooring at Cockatoo, much the same as Vernon, and she began operating as that school ship in late 1891. Now, during that 20 years, some 4,000 boys, delinquent, homeless, those from broken homes, all of those sort of situations that Sarah has uh, 
you know, discussed that led to these boys being there in the first place. Uh, they learnt nautical trades, careers, and actually some of them uh, went on to reach pretty high office later on in, in elsewhere in Australia. Uh, one, Bernard Kieran became a world champion swimmer until his untimely death in 1905. But um, the old clipper ship was eventually sold to the Australian government in 1911. And it wasn't going to be a change of too much of, of the role that she'd already performed so well for 20 years, because at that point, the Royal Australian Navy uh, was looking very, very carefully at how it was going to train its workforce. And mirroring that of the Royal Navy, where they'd used these uh, training hulks previously, Sabrawn really did fit the bill quite well. So she was refitted. Uh, her masts were, were cut down. There were improvements made to the vessel to further uh, accommodate it as a vessel suited better to naval training. Uh, and she was commissioned as HMAS Tingaira, which was a Indigenous word meaning open sea, so that was quite appropriate, uh, on the 25th of April 1911. And she became the, you know, fledgling Australian Navy's first training ship and the very first cradle of the Royal Australian Navy. So she becomes a naval training ship. Uh, what were what was the navy bringing on board were they boys were they adult seam uh, adults to become seamen Uh, were they trained just as sailors or were they going to be trained as stokers or something like that well on the 1st of june 1912 the first batch of 37 boys recruited from new south wales joined tingaira and drafts when other states uh, soon followed completing the first intake that numbered about 100 so you've got 100 boys in the first intake in 1912. Entry at that time was limited to boys between the ages of 14 and a half and 16 years who were bound to serve for seven years following their 18th birthday, a practice adopted directly from the Royal Navy and one that continued right through World War II. Um, you know, many of the boys who were ser- boys seamen serving in Royal Navy ships during the Second World War as 16-year-olds, their service for the purpose of long service and recognition didn't begin counting until they were deemed men, so from their 18th birthday. So uh, that was a little bit of a, a, a little unfair in hindsight, perhaps. Um, so what happened? On joining Tingaira, the boys were immediately assigned an official number. Uh, most ex-service people would be familiar with that, and uh, everyone remembers their service number. It's just one of those things that's uh, firmly impressed on your mind. Uh, and indeed, it was in your interest to know that for purposes of pay and leave and, and so on and so forth. Um, they were placed in either the port or starboard watch. And this, this goes back to what Sarah was saying earlier about this, this naval nomenclature that was applied. So from the very outset, you know, they're getting into this uh, routine of understanding the, the naval language of the time. Um, they were kitted up with what was termed casual clothing, which an interim kit basically consisting of a cap, uh, a duck suit. Uh, duck was a coarse, canvassy white material, uh, and that was a fairly robust material that they wore for that, that if one can visualise that typical sailor suit. And when you consider that they're on hands and knees, scrubbing decks and things like that, uh, it needed to be fairly robust. They'd get a towel, they'd get a cake of soap, hammock, blankets, and shoes were only ever worn uh, when undertaking parade or gunnery training or when ashore uh, on Sundays for divine service. So most of the time, these lads in the Tingaira uh, went about their business barefoot, wooden decks and scaling the rigging. Um, A more complete 
uh, kit out would take place some weeks later. Um, they were divided into classes of about 12, and the first four months they received comprehensive instruction in seamanship similar to that taught in the Vernon. And on completion, they would then sit examinations before beginning training where they would you know, be steered in a course of be it whether they would be young signalmen or gunnery sailors or just remain seamen. Um, it was a fairly quick pace. Everything was done at the double. Uh, the discipline was strict. Uh, at times, it could be uh, brutal. Uh, there was sport. There was games. Um, Tingaira was uh, birthed in uh, Rose Bay adjacent to Lion Park and uh, there was a lot of field work, um, musketry, cutlass drills, those sorts of things would take place in Lion Park. Um, sport, games on board, uh, some of those games could be quite brutal. Um, there was one game known as Hunting the Bear where you'd see this, uh, this poor lad and his hands and knees in a gym mat with uh, uh, minimal padding on him and the other boys would beat him with slippers. So I'm not quite sure what the point of that was, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I think everyone got to hunt the bear and everyone got to be the bear. And quite horrific when we look back with uh, you know, the eyes of today on, on, on this being meted out to young boys. So what was a typical day's routine like in Tingaira? Well, uh, they would normally turn out at about 5.30 in the morning, lash and stow their hammocks before being mustered for baths and showers. After bathing, each boy would receive a cup of cocoa, known as kai in the Navy, a cup of kai, before turning to and cleaning ship. Again, as Sarah referred to earlier in Vernon, cleanliness, discipline, routine. This was a theme that carried on from Vernon into Sabroan into Tingaira, and it was very, very much the naval way and all part of that Royal Navy uh, approach to growing the boy into an effective man, okay? And if somebody could obey orders and carry them out with alacrity, mission accomplished. Um, once they'd had, uh, you know, turn two in the morning, the boats would be turned out. This was another a routine thing that would happen. It's a seamanship drill that, um, you know, is necessary in ships, whether they're uh, iron or sail, it didn't matter. You know, those basic drills of turning boats out, manning boats, conveying people from sea to shore, very, very useful in the day-to-day -day life of any sailor anywhere. The last boy to fall in, though, uh, in Tingaira, uh, when they turned out in the morning, well, that was not usually a good thing because the last lad would, uh, be made, would basically be made to climb the ship's rigging half a dozen times, which was never a pleasant prospect, particularly on those cold mornings in Sydney. Remember, they're bare feet when frosts were about. Um, that was usually followed by half an hour of vigorous physical training. All of the boys would be ordered over the ship's rigging then three times. So if the that's three times in addition to the poor lad who's already... Already's <laughs> done his time. <laughs> he's done his time uh, before mustering for breakfast. Grace was said before all meals. Um, divine service and religion was considered to be an important part of, uh, you know, the adjustment of these people to lead good, upstanding lives. Um, and that was led by the ship's padre. On completion of breakfast each day, classroom and practical instruction began and that would normally go probably till about 1600 in the afternoon at which time the boys would then be released to do you know domestic type duties and things like that uh, or compulsory organized sport by about seven o'clock in the evening 1900 naval time uh, on completion of supper the boys were allowed to write letters or participate in voluntary games till about half past eight at night 
uh, and then they were fallen in before being ordered to turn in, uh, rig their hammocks and lights out would occur promptly at about 2100 or 9 o'clock at night. So their day was um, quite prescriptive in nature and, and again, following that, that routine, people in the port watch, people in the starboard watch, um, always under the supervision of uh, senior sailors, petty officers, chief petty officers, leading hands. Um, and during the 15 years that Tingaira performed that role, some 3,158 boys were trained and most of them went on to take their place in the Royal Australian Navy fleet. John, Tingaira remained in service until 1927 and then she was decommissioned. Uh, why was she decommissioned and, and what happened to the training of sailors or junior sailors after that? Look, you're right. The The last draft of Tingaira boys began their training in 1926 and in August that year, recruiting of boys ceased. Um, and the following year, on the 30th of June 1927, Tingaira was paid off and after passing through the hands of a number of different owners, she was eventually broken up in Sydney. But what happened to the Navy is your question, I guess. So by then, HMAS Cerberus, the uh, major training establishment down at Flinders on the Mornington Peninsula, had been commissioned some years earlier, and that was where most of the Navy's training transferred to. Um, it was variously, or well-known, I should say, at those time, by the name Flinders Naval Depot. Even though it was commissioned as HMAS Cerberus, it was affectionately known as FND, Flinders Naval Depot, for many years. And that train many of the people, uh, boys and men, who went on to serve in the Royal Australian Navy in World War II and indeed to present day. So it was more of a financial uh, activity to close it down or just to consolidate training into one I think one it was location? probably the confluence of a number of things. I think that, um, you know, the idea of having young boys in these uh, uh, vessels... Uh, uh, in Sydney and elsewhere where they were subject to that sort of discipline. That would be one consideration. But remember this, by 1927, the, the Sabroan was, was very, very old and in a, you know, a state of disrepair. She'd been afloat, sitting in the water for a long time. Um, and you know, surveys of that vessel would, would probably have concluded that she'd reached her end of useful life. So what were you going to do? Were you going to replace her with another training vessel or follow the Royal Navy's lead where they'd you know, made this conscious decision to set up a number of established training establishments throughout Britain, um, and I think that that was the model that was followed. Um, there was still much of that shipboard life taken ashore, and as Sarah very, very eloquently pointed out beforehand, uh, in most of the Navy's training establishments, uh, the parade grounds were known as the quarter deck. Uh, there were masts, rigs, the naval vernacular and terminology was carried ashore. You know, you didn't have toilet blocks, you had the heads. Uh, you didn't have um, uh, uh, rooms, you had dongers or uh, you, your, your bed was your bunk or your or your hammock or your pit or something like that. So a lot of that was, you know, incorporated into it. And that's how the Navy went forward. Um, obviously, throughout the 20th, 20th century, again, driven by technology, there were a number of other bases and training establishments. Uh, the Apprentice Training School at HMAS Narimba near Quakers Hill in Sydney was established and that also took young boys. Um, the training establishment in Western Australia in the early 1960s, HMAS Lewin, that continued the custom of taking young boys as junior recruits 
through HMAS Lewin as young as 15 uh, years of age. There was also a number of recruits, uh, two intakes of junior recruits that went through HMAS service as boys in the early 1960s. And as you referred to earlier, that training didn't uh, finish until the early 1980s, at which time it was decided that young boys would no longer be uh, trained and that the maximum age would be raised to about 17 years of age. Thanks, John. Sarah, can you talk about the impact uh, on Vernon Sabrone boys? You know, how good were they when they left? You know, did any of them become famous? You know, was did they form sort of an association afterwards? You know, did they stand up and say, yeah, "I'm a Sabrone boy"? You know, look at me, sort of thing, or something like that. Mm. I wish they'd started um, an organisation where they could all write in and speak to each other, but sadly, no. Um, uh, I think, though, I think many of the boys were quite conscious of how their lives had been impacted by these ships, um, this one institution. Um, I think many of them thought that it had been impacted for the better. Um, uh, the reason I think that is that many boys wrote into their captains as adults um, and they often reflected in those letters about that lucky day um, that they were brought on board, escorted by the police. Um, I can think of many, many boys as adults who wrote into the captains reminiscing about their happy days on board. Um, I think, though, we have to be careful not to blow those letters out of proportion, um, that some of them, some of these letters do exist in their original form, uh, but many others do not. Um, they come to us now as typed and published versions in the captain's annual reports. Um, and as a historian, I'm very conscious that these letters were chosen for publication uh, to the colonial and state governments, um, and we should not forget that there were many boys and adults who probably did not write in um, or whose letters were d- destroyed or just simply not published. Maybe um, if you didn't write a glowing report of your boyhood uh, on these ships, you weren't included. That's not to say that negative letters were never published um, because they were, um, but it's very difficult to get a handle on the numbers of boys who turned out well, um, particularly because you need to define what turned out well actually implies um, uh, or even who enjoyed their time it's an impossible task Um, I think that there are some famous examples of boys who did clearly enjoy their time because they've published their memoirs and mentioned what a great time that they had. Um, There are other boys um, like Kieran, the swimmer, who John mentioned earlier. Um, He would never have achieved the the heights of his championship fame uh, if he hadn't been spotted as an excellent swimmer and then supported by the Sabron staff. Um, who also helped fundraise uh, to get him to his big competitions overseas and in Australia. So there was some absolutely we can definitively say enjoyed themselves and did very well. Uh, There are others, though, other famous boys who tend to be famous because they were criminals. Um, There's William Rice, who was hanged at Darlinghurst Jail um, after publishing his list of regrets um, in life, 
one of his big regrets was not taking the opportunities um, that were offered to him in life. Um, there was Steiner, the escape artist, um, uh, who was moved around New South Wales' as jails because he was so um, accomplished at removing himself from his jail cell. I like to think that he would sit in his cell and think, this is a snack compared to the Sabron. No swimming required. Um, uh, certainly um, the boys when they were out on apprenticeships and some of these boys were out on apprenticeships for a very long time. They were there till they were 18 years old. If you were on the younger end um, of the Vernon's population, anything from about eight years old, you could be out on apprentice as a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old. You could be out for many, many years. And a lot of them would write into the captain and say, you know, dear captain, will you please ask B to write to me? Um, will you please tell H that I bought a whole watermelon at the show last week and we've always wanted to do that? Um, K and L um, had a wonderful time with me at the Sunday school picnic last month. Um, so a lot of them were keeping in contact while they were out on apprenticeship. Um, I think that it would be lovely to think that some of them stayed in touch with each other. Um, but I think that the, the best test of the Vernon and Sabron is that we can't answer these questions. Um, in, in some cases, obscurity, um, in the case of these pupils, is a, a mark of the success of the ships. Um, if they they were aiming to create ordinary, hardworking men, be them um, uh, agricultural workers, be, the, be they sailors, um, and I think it's in some ways a really good thing if we can't find them in the historical record because it means that they were just ordinary, normal people getting on with their lives. Um, I hope that they kept in contact, but I think sometimes the stigma associated with being a Vernon or Sabron boy led many of them to obscure that fact uh, when they were applying for jobs. But I'm sure they would recognise each other when they came across each other. Thanks. John, what, what about the Tingara boys? You know, there's over 3,000 trained on board. How did they fare in the Navy and did any of them you know, rise to high rank? Look, I think Sarah's covered this quite well, that, you know, it, it was mixed fortunes being a boy seaman. Um, you know, some of them did quite well and made the best of their life. Some of these young lads had a miserable time. They, you know, it, it would be naive to think that they weren't picked on. It would be naive that they weren't subject to forms of bastardisation and maltreatment. And, you know, there is a balance of that. So I think that we, we can't overlook that that fact that it, this wasn't a perfect system whereby, you know, these boys, were all of them were having a fat time. Um, for the most part, from the Navy's perspective, it certainly produced a really good crop of sailors for those that went on to serve in the Royal Australian Navy. Um, one of the great examples of that is during the Sydney Emden engagement when Sydney starts to uh, take a bit of punishment from the German cruiser. Uh, there's a number of shells from the Emden that come onto the ship, uh, partially detonate, and it was Tingaira boys that picked these hot, sizzling shells up and hoisted them over the side, and in doing so received, you know, terrible burns. They were actually commented on in the post-action report uh, by Glossop and others, you know, for the bravery that they demonstrated. Um, their discipline in that action uh, held. So a lot of that sort of naval uh, 
culture, if you like, inculcating them with, with discipline and, and preparing them for that, did make them good sailors. Now, those young boys of World War One, a number of them served as senior sailors and some as uh, uh, bosuns and, uh, and commissioned officers during World War Two. Um, many of them were lost and made the supreme sacrifice. So I think that from the Navy's perspective, having that uh, in the absence of a dedicated training establishment in the formative years of the Royal Australian, Australian Navy was absolutely essential. Um, the models that followed, uh, the, the, the naval shore establishments, Lewin, uh, Cerberus, Narimba chiefly, um, I think the legacy continued with that. And, you know, there's, there's very, very good stories that came out of that where uh, young lads who joined the Australian Navy as 15 or 16-year-olds carved out really, really satisfying and rewarding careers. There was others who, who did not enjoy their time there and did not have a good time there, uh, to be frank. And that's something that, that has been looked into closely both at the time and since. Um, but getting to the success of these overall, when you consider that over, I think, uh, you know, let's call it a 20-year period of, of Lewin, for example, where the, the junior recruits went through, there was something like 13,500 junior recruits went through. Um, a number of them reached flag rank. Uh, uh, flag rank, that's an admiral? Yeah, so the Chief of Navy, um, uh, Vice Admiral Russ Crane, for example, he's, he began his time in the Royal Australian Navy as a junior recruit. Rear Admiral Brian Adams is another. And there's a number of those others who've reached Commodore rank. In my own case, um, you know, I, I was very, very happy to have, you know, proceeded through the ranks and, and eventually commissioned myself, albeit not to the lofty heights of, of admirals. Um, so it's, I, and I think that uh, many of those boys who entered at that young age uh, did, did stay in for a, a, a full career. I'm not sure that there is an argument that they stayed in longer than adult recruits, but uh, you know, if you, I don't have the the access to those sorts of metrics, but you know, from those who I know who went through that time, many of them did stay for uh, a full career and retired after 20 years of service. Thanks. To close, I'd just like to ask uh, Sarah and John what their thoughts of the, the the legacy of the training ships was, you know, uh, and what you feel about the the good, the bad, the indifferent of the whole activity. Sarah? Um, I think John makes a great point that um, many of the boys on these ships wouldn't have always had a brilliant time um, and that those stories of um, teenage bullying and, and problems like that that are still in schools and institutions today, we don't always hear about. But I think even with that in mind, for me, the, the legacy of these ships, this institution rests in terms of the amazing vision and the hard work of the staff who worked on them. Um, I think and I mean not just the men who earned the salaries, um, but also their wives and daughters who were working behind the scenes and who were often thanked in the boys' letters. Um, I think the staff were incredibly insightful. They were often experimental and incredibly resilient. Um, uh, in a state-supported institution, not palmed off onto private enterprise, as so often happens these days, um, I think that these men and women were amazing people to forge ahead in creating an institution that really didn't have a, 
a strong blueprint from the beginning. Um, as someone who's lived in New South Wales for most of my life, um, I'm very proud to say that these institutions were from my home state. I'm very impressed with the staff. Thanks, Sarah. And John? I, I support Sarah. I think that um, often the, the staff who work in these training establishments and ships you know, go overlooked. And it's amazing the difference that a good senior sailor or an interested member of staff can have on a young uh, lad who has, you know, for whatever reason ended up there. Um, I'll bring this a little closer to home. I know in my own father's instance that um, he had a number of people who invested in him when he was a, a boy uh, seaman. Uh, in Watts Naval Training School, uh, I think it was a, a, one of the chaplains there who took a particular, you know, interest in him and encouraged him to be the best that he could, and he took that through life and uh, and passed that on to myself and my siblings. Um, in my own service in the Navy, uh, I can still remember my first divisional officer at HMAS Lewin, uh, Lieutenant Cliff Roberts. He was a Royal Navy uh, World War II veteran himself. Uh, Rumours abounded about the adventures and the character of this man, uh, how he'd been, been sunk numerous times. He was a gunnery officer and uh, he was appropriately had appropriately had the nickname Meaty Bites and, and people used to mimic him. But in reunion since, uh, you know, he's recalled fondly. Now, as far as the legacy is concerned, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, Tingaira here, um, there was an association formed uh, called the Tingaira Old Boys Association, uh, and many of those boys who'd gone through HMAS Tingaira were members of this association, and it was a very, very good association for many, many years. Um, they would put out a, uh, a newsletter called Open Sea, which is the meaning of Tingaira. And in that, you can find a lot of their uh, personal stories recorded. Uh, so that's a great resource for, for gaining an insight into uh, their reflections about their time both in Tingaira and what they did beyond that uh, in the Navy uh, and where those adventures took them. Some of these men ended up uh, on the Thai Burma Railway. Others were there to witness Japan's surrender in Tokyo Bay. Um, the Tingaira Old Boys Association folded probably, you know, 20 odd years ago. Uh, I think, you know, the last of the Tingaira boys, I think, was Danny Bowden, uh, who died in South Australia at a ripe old age. But um, what's been picked up from there is the whole Tingaira theme has been picked up by those junior recruits who went through Cerberus and Lewin, and it's now the Tingaira Association. There was a reunion held a number of years ago for those who went through Lewin. And overwhelmingly, it was a positive vibe. Uh, I think it was the biggest uh, event that the Burwood Casino in um, Perth had, had hosted till that time. Such was the turnout uh, where all these boys, or former boys, I should say, from around Australia, went back to HMAS Lewin, or Lewin Barracks as it is at the moment, uh, to, you know, to reunite. And tremendous. Overwhelmingly, um, I think from the Navy's perspective, at the time, uh, both the the boys training ship Tingaira and the various boys training schemes that they had subsequent to that certainly suited their needs at the time and, and helped to increase that manpower. So I think overall it was a good thing. Uh, I think it's probably appropriate today that, uh, you know, uh, it, that it's it's probably not, but uh, the age is raised and, and, you know, we're doing just fine going through 17 onwards. 
Thanks, John. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Sarah Luke and John Perriman for joining me today. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you'd like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.